Kiara, Nihao, and hello. Welcome to the Chewy Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. My guest today is Tom Morgan. He's the director of communications and content at the KCP Group, and writes a newsletter called the Attention Span, which curates and synthesizes content and ideas among the best thinkers in wide variety of areas. In this episode, we discussed Joseph Campbell's hero journey and follow your bliss, global face change, and many topics related to Jordan B. Peterson. I hope you enjoy the show. You retweet a post on Twitter yesterday, mentioned a trend that we a lot of smart people currently very interested in. Like meditation, metaphysics, power of myths and stories, and spirituality. Because you mentioned that is a face change. Jim O'Shaughnessy he mentioned that is a great reshuffle. So can you please elaborate more details about、uh, this term and what direction do you think we human beings are heading to? It's one of those things where, like, I've got to be really careful that. I'm not just cherry picking a bunch of evidence that suits a narrative that I want to be true, but I think there's a lot of value in life. You know, taking in a huge amount of information, letting it sit for a little while, and then seeing kind of what drops out of it as a trend that you think expresses the whole. And having sat with all the various different individual ingredients that I see around me. I think we're trending towards something very unusual that a lot of people aren't talking about. That I'm calling the global phase change, and I'm, I, you know, as I said to Jim, I'm not even sure I'm, I'm using that term correctly. But what I mean is, is that you know, something I, I know you know I'm, I'm very interested in has been this work of the doctor Ian McGilchrist, who has this, this hemispheric theory of the brain. There's no way I can ever summarize, but you know, effectively, we've become much more le- left hemisphere focused. At the at the cost of、uh, the right hemisphere kind of view of the whole, and the very very short version of that is that we've got into this system where all of our incentive structures are targeting abstract things like money, like power, engagement algorithms to keep people on their phone for longer, and the idea is is that because it's a multipolar trap, if you don't do it, someone else is going to. If you don't put the beauty filter on your Instagram、uh, function, someone else is going to do it. If you don't make your business more profitable by firing all your workers, someone else is going to do it. And it's having all of these unintended negative consequences that we can all see very obviously. The way back from that is by targeting the DAO or Slack or doing things for their own intrinsic benefit and infinite games for the point of continuing the game. And I'm seeing this manifest across, you know, hundreds of different sources. And my job is in investment, so I look at it and I see it in stock markets and I see it in in, in culture. But that's sort of the way where we, I think we're going to undergo this very sudden, irrational pivot towards a much more right hemispheric version of the world. I summarized this trend on Weibo, and I got eighty-six、uh, thousand views within twenty-four hours, and、uh, more than eighty retweets, and a lot of、uh, retweets from the VC in China. So they also noticed this.、Uh, I find it's very interesting. Before, I always find my life is、uh, involved with a lot of coincidence or luck. But you mentioned you don't believe what <laughs> the coincidence or luck anymore. Can you? Explain why? Because I just feel like everything is connected. Even yesterday, I sent you a DM on Twitter. You tweet a true detective. Then Weibo reminds me. Oh, seven years ago, you say the true detective, the Yellow King, this kind of thing. Just this coincidence, I can't understand. I hope to learn your take on that. I mean, I have no idea, right? This is sort of the deep mysteries of the universe stuff, but. What there's a really interesting idea I've written about、uh, by a guy called Rupert Sheldrake、uh, called morphic resonance. Yeah, it's, it's well, the funniest part of it is on the day I wrote a piece on morphic resonance, Chris Williams, yeah, yeah. <laughs> published an interview with the founder, the, the developer of the theory, an hour within me putting out my piece, right? Like, and if, like if that isn't a signal, what is? 
but you know for for listeners that don't know what it's about it's it's this idea that there's sort of this zeitgeist where there's a field of ideas that is like a Jungian collective unconscious and that we can, we're, we're sort of tapped into it on a very fundamental level so that when, when the, when something resonates with a group of people, it spreads very, very quickly. And you kind of see that on the internet with memes already, but this is something a, a little bit more metaphysical. And I think that, you know, when you're thinking about the nature of coincidence, I'm not, I'm not kind of one of those determinists that say that everything is foreordained and everything is is happening the way it should. I think that's kind of a weird way to live your life. But I think the more aligned you are with the Tao, the more aligned you are with this sort of morphic field, the better your life goes. But the signal that you get from the environment that you're on the right path, that you're on the Tao, is a series of coincidences and signals from the environment that, yes, this is the right path. Please continue. And it's something that I've seen accelerate in my life when I've been talking about these topics that I kind of get this nudge from the world around me being like, yes, you're moving in the right direction. And you also get a nudge when you're moving in the wrong direction as well. And that things dry up, you get very disinterested, you know, you get no opportunities in life. And it's this very kind of subtle information gradient where if you learn how to attune to it, it can, it can be an incredibly positive force in your life. I see. So how can you determine you are not in your eco chamber? Because, you know, once you are follow these leads, you will always focus on these hands. Because in my life, I sometimes wonder, am I just too focused on follow my intuition, just to pick up the hands in my life? So how do you make sure you are not in your own bubble? You know, I don't think you can. Like I had this, I had this slightly smug joke where it's like, Everyone knows the David Foster Wallace speech, This is Water, where, you know, like no one knows the water that they're swimming in. And I'm like, there's also a group of people that like quoting David Foster Wallace without realizing they're a group of people that like quoting David Foster Wallace, (laughs) right? Like there's kind of like this big intellectual circle, particularly on Twitter, where, and in finance, where you can basically get convinced you're seeing the whole world when you're actually seeing like a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of it. And I think that, It's probably an imperfect way, but what I've said to people is that, you know, make sure you're not following what the algorithm wants you to follow. You know, like if if you click a certain number of videos on YouTube to get you emotionally engaged, it's going to take you down increasingly emotionally engaging rabbit holes. And these aren't decisions you're making. And I think that we need to make um, a quite conscious decision every time we click and every time we read, is this something that I'm intrinsically interested in? Because I have this this big macro thesis, um, the thesis that has changed my life that I've taken from Carl Jung and a bunch of others, basically saying that if you pursue what you love, for want of a better word, but if you pursue your interests, your your life will work out better than, than any other way. But intrinsic in that is you have to be following your interests, right? You have to be reading things that are intrinsically interesting to you. And often... If you're on social media, it's very difficult to do that. It's why I don't use Facebook, because it's just going to be what my friends think. Whereas on Twitter, it's a relatively unbounded domain. I find people I resonate with, like you. We have conversations, and that leads me to other interesting areas when they say, oh, have you spoken to X? Oh, have you spoken to Y? And I take that as this kind of reciprocal exchange of gifts from the world around me. And I think that the one thing that also speaks to is that on Twitter in particular, which I found... uh, is one of the most powerful tools I've ever used. You've got to meet people in real life or you've got to do Zooms because otherwise you don't get the same kind of serendipity that you seem to get by just scrolling down the the timeline. Mm, Exactly. It reminds me when I attended Jim O'Shaughnessy's uh, Rick and Morty Salon. I see your picture just right next to me. Then you start to post some recommendations. I said, oh, this guy is very interesting. That's how I find you on Twitter and start the interaction. And then you mentioned the call young, follow your interest. Joseph Campbell also mentioned follow your place. So I'm very interested in your own hero journey. Can you walk me through the your career path and how do you become who you are today? Well, I'll give you the short version because I don't think I don't think my story is all that interesting. I spent 15 years on Wall Street in London and New York and 
around about what must have been 20, 2015 now, I think. Um, I moved to a new firm. I spent a couple of years there and I sort of slowly lost interest in what I was doing, but I kind of stuck around because I was, I was being so well paid. Um, and then eventually, like, I realized how damaging that was for a lot of, of people in life and actually particularly in finance because the compensation is so high and the lifestyle tends to be, you know, relatively high end. It becomes very, very difficult for people to, to, to pivot in midlife. And in fact, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, it's very interesting to watch people once they've lost interest in what they're doing. If you regard your interest in something as an indication of how much growth it has for you, if you lose interest in what you're doing, it's a sign you need to move on. But our modern job market, particularly sort of for people my age in their 40s, is not set up for that. Given you acquire a skill base in a certain area and then you need to move on, but often you get pigeonholed in your particular area and at your particular comp level. It's almost impossible to pivot. So anyway, I, I decided, um, I think very naively, uh, to, to leave without a plan. So I just left my job and I was like, the universe will provide. Um, the universe did not provide. Uh, I made a series of increasingly bad decisions with my career, with my life. Uh, I spiraled down and down and down, became you know more and more and more desperate. Um, uh, it, it was a very, very, very difficult and dark period for me. Mm -hmm. But all the way through that time, I was reading a lot of spiritual content, sort of more out of desperation that someone's going to have the idea that's going to free me from this this, this prison. And one of the things that Carl Jung's, um, one of one of his sort of main disciples, Mary Louise von Franz talks about, is that this, there's this stage in the individuation of a human being, where the small self that always acts from the illusion that it's in control, gets put up against a wall, gets put up against a wall and puts in a, it's get put in a situation it cannot get out of, and it cannot think itself out of. And that's supposed to produce this situation of surrender where the larger self can come through. And I think a lot of people get very desperate in those situations and often, you know, you know, kill themselves or do very, very stupid things. When I think that the psychological meaning is just for you to give up because eventually I hit rock bottom. I gave up. Um, I, you know, the, 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 the rational prison for me was that I felt my next move in life because my previous skill set was on wall street. It had to be meaningful. So I spent time training to be a social worker. I spent time being a Jungian analyst, um, all these different meaningful careers that I don't think I was going to be very good at. And what was funny is that, you know, the universe, for want of a better word, kept closing off these paths to me very aggressively. And I was like, why is this not working out? Why am I not getting this job? Why am I not getting accepted for that job? Why do I, why do I find this so boring when it's what I should be doing? And eventually I just gave up. Um, and got a job back in finance. But while I was doing that job, I kept writing and I kept synthesizing. And the stuff that I'd been doing earlier on in my career was just doing lists of insights. So I developed this kind of pattern recognition skill for what people in finance found interesting. And then after my, my breakdown, I basically started synthesizing. So instead of just listing I started pulling the ideas together increasingly and finding the commonalities between them. And now what I try and do in my writing at a relatively early stage is identify universal patterns, knit them together and sort of create this synthesis. Because if you can find universal patterns, by definition, they recur at all these different levels. And the more you read, the more they recur. And you're just like, oh, there must, that must mean something. And so what I've been doing now is, you know, I was very, very, very lucky. So what, well, you can, you can look at luck or you can look at coincidence, right? <laughs> so I, I wrote a lot and I wrote a lot about sort of spirituality and embodiment and I got zero responses. No one gave a shit. Right. And then the moment I combined my writing with what I knew about, which was investing, I immediately got offered a job to do my dream job. Right. And there's this really interesting sort of, again, Taoist concept of follow your bliss, but it has to be what the world needs, right? You have to be meeting a need of some kind. And I think that's some, something that people really misinterpret. In fact, for reasons I can elaborate on, I think follow your bliss is one of the most misunderstood pieces of advice ever. 
because it's very, 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 very difficult to do for all number of different reasons. But if I was doing things that I thought the world needed and the world was telling me I don't need that. I was trying to go to jobs that I thought the world needed and the world was telling me, no, you don't need that. And the very moment I walked towards it, things opened up. And since this point, the more confidence I've had to talk about topics that are interesting to me, the wider my distribution has got and the wide, the more people that have taken an interest, I think because they've resonated with the topics that I'm producing, as, as have you. So when you get your current job, do you feel like it's uh, like aligned with your value and your skill set altogether? And uh, you didn't uh, fight very hard to get this job, but this job kind of pick up you. Yes, exactly right. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to diminish the role of my employers. You know, the KCP group are amazing at giving me almost total freedom to do what I want. And yes, but I have to con constantly rein myself in, right? Like left to my own devices, I'd be writing like 8,000 word crazy spiritual concepts, which would have no real world practicality. So I'm very grateful that I'm employed by, you know, fundamentally a wealth management firm with a lot of very, you know, interesting and curious clients. But it means that I have to wrestle everything I'm writing about into a business and investing context. And I find that if I don't do that, no one reads it anyway, right? Like I, so it, it's sort of, again, you have to get this balance right of of interesting concepts, but with some level of practice. It also resonates with my story. I used to work in finance for three years, but my body kind of reminds me that's not your word. You need to pursue the other way. I quit my job like without the next plan twice. When I was working in big corporate, it's all my body's reminder. One is um, I got some, uh, I don't know the English word. It's like a lot of reddish on my face and body. <sighs> and the second time is um, my panic attack twice. So I say, okay, it's time. I need to give up. Because, <laughs> you know, when you in the corporate world, yeah, they paid so well and you kind of live the life the society always tell you to do. But then your body will remind you, no, this is not your, not your road. You need to yeah, follow your interests. Now I ended, ended up in Portugal to do some art-related project, which is uh, the thing I always want to do when I was little. Yeah, the universe will give you a better plan. I, I think you stumbled on something that's really important and... If I were me listening to me three years ago, mm -hmm. I think I'd probably be very annoyed, right? Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe anything that I had to say. You know, I think it was very interesting as I, I had like chronic pain and chronic health issues when I was in when I was in the wrong place. That no, um, that no, you know, American diagnostic healthcare could work out. And what was interesting is that I did an elimination diet. Um, where you basically cut out all rich foods, you know, alcohol, caffeine, well, to a lesser extent. And I started thinking much clearer. And then the signals from my unconscious and my body became much, much clearer. And I then sort of got a burst of energy and I wrote a book, which was just an amalgamation of all the quotes I found most resonant. And then I realized the quotes were about me. And that tipped me into the phase of life through a series of quite strange experiences that, um, that I, I found myself in. But after that point, you know, both, you know, Campbell and, and many other people have talked about this concept of, of, of the dragon, where it's like you when you talk about what your friend's expectations are, you know, Nietzsche said on the scales of the dragon on every scale was written, thou shalt, you know, what are you supposed to be doing? What are you supposed, where are you supposed to be? at this time of your life. And I think when you get into your 40s with a lot of responsibilities, particularly in American culture, it's very, very, very hard to sacrifice that. And then when you when you lay it into that, the reason why you're doing these things is probably because of aspects of your character that crave safety, right? Like you want to work in these abstract fields with high incomes because there's something in you that wants it. And so you're not just giving up money you actually have to confront the, a lot of your personal limitations, you know, uh, to, to get through that, which is why it's such an unbelievably tough stage of life. Yeah, it reminds me about uh, my Miguel Chris. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his book. Yeah, he mentioned the left hemisphere only capture the limited information, but the right hemisphere is more information you are not aware of. 
is all the uncertainty you need to face through. Well, what's funny is that the McGilchrist theory actually completely corroborates all of this view, right? So firstly, the left hemisphere is fundamentally competitive, right? It does not give over control to the right hemisphere, whereas the right hemisphere does not have that relationship with the left. It exists through this um, relationship of care. So you basically have this situation where the ego will not hand over the steering wheel, despite it having access to literally millions of times less information. And so when you think about the concept of following your bliss, it's sort of this letting go of the wheel and your interests, your broad interests, your exploratory attention is controlled by your right hemisphere. So what you're doing is, is you're saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that if I follow my interests, it will work out better than I thought it would. And Joseph Campbell says, you know, doors will open where only there were walls. And I love that phrasing because that's sort of what we're talking about is that there is this process of surrender and faith. Um, although, I, you know, I think that word is very loaded, but there is this surrender and faith that comes with it. And the cost of that is high. The cost of that is certainty. The cost of it is like, I do not know where I will be one week to the next, you know, and I do not know how much money I'm going to make. And I have no level of certainty across anything significant. I have enough certainty, you know, I have a salary, which is a better place than I was in. But that is the bargain that you make in order to live this kind of life. And it, it's not for everyone. Mm, exactly. Yeah. I think this very connected with the Eastern philosophy, because my grandparents, they are they, they started a lot of Dao De Jing, I Ching. They always say the surrender, surrender, because when I was little, they, they told me some stories about the cultural revolution. They are the survival from the cultural revolution. They are very intelligent and they graduated from very famous university. And a lot of their peers, they got killed or they killed themselves during cultural revolution. But they surrender. We will let the universe lead our way. But when I was little, I thought there, ooh, this is not a rational <laughs> explanation. You can't just take your destiny to some higher power because I, I can't understand that. But now when I grow older, I kind of uh, experience the same thing. Every time I want to control my life, it's just filled. But if I surrender, let my right hemisphere uh, lead me to the unknown, it works very well. Well, there's something I don't understand, right? Which is that it seems to be this three-stage process that is one of those universal ideas that you just see recur every single, every single place you look, right? Which is that there's a process of, so in, in the course of someone's life, right? When you're a kid, you're completely in the flow. You're completely relaxed. You don't have any of the same kind of concerns, then you gradually get more and more powerful, but more so more and more abstracted, right? You, you get this sort of this egoic control of the world. And if you take it too far, you try and control too much and it kind of breaks you. And so you have to go into this third stage of life where you let go again, but you let go again in a way that you can co-create with the environment. So your ego is strong enough to act in the world, but it's acting in harmony with the world. And that's this concept of the Taoist sage that makes these tiny interventions which positively influence the whole system, which you can't do when you're a kid because you don't know what you're doing when you're a kid. You can't do when you're in middle age because you're, you're still trying to force your, your will on the world. But that cadence makes me wonder that we should go easy on people that are kind of grinding it out because maybe there's a stage of your life where you need to be doing that in order to make your ego strong enough that it can then act in the world in a positive way. But I've read so many different perspectives on that. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know which one is the right one. So when you mentioned you were in your three years, like wandering around, did you self-help you or your friends or other people or books help you most? But I do say, I don't know how to explain that because a lot of people, when they are, wandering around they sometimes just give up on themselves but for me when i had that body reminder i was like a drowning person i'm so eager to save myself i don't know what's your situation like what's your survival intuition lead you i don't know it's a it's a really hard question to to answer because i don't think i've ever been asked anything like it i mean during the very, very, very darkest time, I gave up alcohol and caffeine and basically anything but like cold vegetables for a year. Wow. Because I, I had this view that 
if I was supposed to be getting signals from the environment as to what my next move was, I better be seeing that clearly. But I think I still stayed where I was for too long. I got a job I, I basically didn't enjoy doing a very, very abstracted form of my prior job. So like, it was a very, very bad fit. It was basically, I went back into it mostly out of fear. And then it didn't give me any of the the nourishment and synthesis that I'd really enjoyed and actually been good at. But again, it was one of those stay for fear. But I was there being like, right, I need to I need to get the signals clearly. But the signals were telling me for like, you know, like a year, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. You're in the wrong place. But I still, I think, lacked the courage to do it. So like I was quite physically healthy. Like I'm not a good runner and I was sort of running you know, six and a half minute miles for like three miles. And because I was so obsessed with like mm. suffering and pain and, and what I was going through. So like, whilst I was probably like from a medical perspective, physically healthy, my mental health was, was a, a one out of 10 and my relationships were like a zero out of 10. Um, I think, you know, sort of the question you also asked is that there were, there are a lot of things that were enormously helpful to me um, in different directions and some sort of aspects of them that were very unhelpful. I think the one thing I regard my, my, my sort of breakdown phase as becoming totally left hemisphere dominant because everything in my life became abstracted and I had no connection to anything, be it life, humans, anything. So I was completely in this sort of this infinite loop prison. And when you're in that state, you have no sense of embodied truth at all. So I was assembling millions of ingredients from all these wisdom traditions, but I would just randomly assume that each one was true, that they would be the answer that would get me out. And my poor wife had to listen to me, you know, once every couple of weeks being like, this is the thing that's going to save me. And then when eventually when I gave up, I've slowly been gaining this sense of kind of deeper embodiment, which is giving me an intuitive sense for when stuff's not true. So I can be faced with very, very, very compelling intellectually co cohesive arguments and be like, no, that sounds like bullshit, but I can't explain why, right? I just know it's not right. Mm. And it's also allowed me to synthesize all of the stuff that I inhaled and basically say, I think this is right and I think this is wrong, often when it's come for the same, from the same person. Because, you know, I, I wrote something this weekend which sort of was aimed actually at someone I think that we we both find very interesting, which is, you know, Jordan Peterson, where I I think you go through this stage a bit like that, uh, that childhood to adulthood stage with people in your life when you're in trouble or when you're learning, that you accept them as your guru initially, then you deconstruct them and kind of reject everything that they say because they say things that you, you don't agree with or you think are stupid. And then once you gain a bit of maturity with it, you're like, actually, here are the things this person said that I think are true and here are the things that I think are false. And I'm not going to throw this whole person out just because they say a bunch of things that, that I disagree with. Mm, I see. Yeah. You mentioned Jordan Peterson during the lockdown. I find his book is kind of my spiritual support because my friend, he translates um, Jordan Peterson's first book, uh, 12 rules of life. And uh, last year, he asked uh, my friend asked me, "Do you want to participate in this project? Translate Jordan Peterson's new book?" I said, yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Through translating his book, I've found, yeah, his second book is more full of compassion compared to the first book. So, what what's your thoughts on his uh, first and uh, second book? Have you seen the the changes he made from the first to second? Yeah, I, I noticed exactly the same thing, actually. Um, I mean, I could we could literally make this a 15-hour Jordan Peterson podcast. <laughs> I've, I've, spent, I've spent more time thinking about him and his work than any other person alive. And, I, I, and the problem with it is, is that, like, I'm afraid to almost mention him because so much of what he says currently, I adamantly disagree with. And a lot of this is kind of selfish on my behalf, right? What I think he's good at in an almost unique way is this combination of psychology and mythology that he can unpack mythology in a way that's clearly like insanely resonant to millions of people. You know, 250 million people watched his YouTube videos. He sold 5 million books, right? There's something there. But also he gets involved in these kind of culture wars arguments like anti-vaxxing, climate change, you know, lockdowns, 
and I'm just a bit like, there's enough discourse on these topics. I, I know I selfishly want you to be something maybe you don't want to be, but if you're going to alienate a, a, a large proportion of your audience by playing into this sort of alt-right stereotype, you're, those are a bunch of people that could be getting value from a lot of your work that they won't be seeing because they're going to be so put off by the other stuff. That was that's sort of how I feel about him. It's I think it's it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. Um, it, I'm actually even more disappointed because the first book is very rigid, right? It's all about the idea of bringing order to the world, um, which actually, some, from sort of the McGilchrist perspective, I don't think is is necessarily what we need more of. We need a little bit more of the chaos. And there was a lot in his worldview that was defined by suffering rather than beauty, but also self-reliance. You know, it was it was this clean your own room, buck up, right? And then in the second book, there's this passage that moved me to tears because it was so similar to my own experience, which is like, you can't do it on your own. You might have doctors and nurses. You might have family. It, when your own character fails, you will be reliant on other people and you have to surrender to that. And I found that profoundly affecting because I think that's very counter to a lot of the narratives of today's world. And to exactly what you said, there's a lot of Taoism in his book, a lot of it in the second book. It's about going with the flow. It's about beauty. It's about art. It's much, much more balanced. And so for me, from a purely selfish perspective, and I followed his work a lot less closely in the last two years than I did in the years before that, but just scrolling through his Twitter feed, I'm like, ugh. I wish you weren't going to these places because there's still such a need for what your core competency is. I see. Yeah, I won't call it a flaw. You know, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, they they have such a big uh, achievement, but uh, they also have something, yeah, air quote flaws or, or things people won't accept them as uh, the good person should be. So I see, I see Jordan Peterson also has this part in him. Is this a package? Every human beings, they need to be like that. They can't be perfect, but we, we, we need to accept the people as they, the whole package are. Yeah, I, I think that's it. I think, I think when you grow up, like it's actually like your parents, right? When you're a kid, you look at your parents and you're like, they are literally flawless. And then when you're a teenager and an adult, you're like, oh, my parents are useless, right? My parents <laughs> know nothing, right? They're just, they're, they're, they're terrible people. And then once you get to be a parent yourself or a liberality, you're like, oh, my parents were me, right? I'm going to integrate the parts of my parents and humanize them in a way that's that's much more realistic. And I think that our culture still needs to do that with the people that we deal with and acknowledge their humanity while also understanding that they can be capable of profound truths. Mm -hmm. There's a passage from Jordan Peterson's first book, Maps of Meaning, that's completely insane. Um, that I'm actually writing about for a couple of weeks from now because it's so insanely resonant for me. Um, and it's basically about a hemispheric breakdown that he had early on in his life, where basically when he's in his early 20s, he, he like debates with people for fun. And then whenever he says something, you remember this? Do you remember in the book? Like no, he, I can't recall. No, Sorry about that. Oh, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that it doesn't seem to come up in a lot of his work, mm. but basically he has this major anxiety condition where whenever he says something, a voice in his headset says, you don't believe that that's not your idea. And he has like an, a, a massive panic attack. And then basically eventually he doesn't know which side he is. Is he the person with the clever arguments or is he the voice saying you don't believe that? And so he says, he, he, he says he went through this process of only saying things that he believed, which meant that he said almost nothing for a very long time, but it meant that he had this method of speaking, which I think was profoundly resonant, which is kind of consistent with the idea of the Taoist sage, where this person is just un speaking unselfconsciously and bringing through stuff from the real world. And I think in the, the McGilchrist framework is a much more kind of spontaneous right hemisphere thinker and speaker. And we can intuitively detect that when people are speaking with their whole person. And it doesn't mean that everything that person said is true, but it means that they're going to say a lot more things that resonate with other people. And I went to see Jordan Peterson several years ago at the Beacon Theatre in New York, and he basically said that a quarter of the letters he received, tens of thousands, were, you articulated something that I'd never heard put into words, but I always understood. 
And I hear McGilchrist say that as well about the stuff that he's writing. So these guys are bringing through content into that morphic field that everyone kind of knows is true, but no one's actually put words around yet. And that's kind of what prophets do. And again, like when he talks about stuff that he doesn't understand and doesn't have a basis for, I'm like, no, that's, you know, stop it. Like, <laughs> like don't do that. Do the stuff about psychology and, and mythology and meaning that you really deeply understand and you have this resonance for. And that's what I want to listen to. So what kind of um, mythology he summarized, like resonating you most? Because I started his uh, YouTube channel on the Bible, the genius. I found, wow, I never thought about that. Yeah, some, some of it I have kind of my own interpretations on now. Like the, his interpretation of the Genesis myth and the Cain and Abel myth. Um, I, we kind of have some important but subtle differences in the way that we perceive them. But the single podcast episode I've listened to that I think is the best podcast episode I've ever listened to because it's completely insane is his Jacob's Ladder episode, which I think is, is number 13. Um, I listened to it again before I did my podcast with Jim O'Shaughnessy because I remembered it had a couple of ideas in there that had become very resonant to me and sort of my synthesis. And I listened to the podcast again and it's like two hours and I'm like, oh my God this has almost every idea that I've ever found interesting in it. And like, and to the extent that I was like, oh, I feel guilty. I feel like I'm <laughs> ripping off this podcast because it's so, it's so, so interesting. But there's sort of like, you know, something that, that ties a lot of the stuff that we've, we've, we've talked about together is the idea of when you hear something and it just sticks, it sticks and you find yourself thinking about it for years, right? Mm. And you don't know where it's going and you don't know why it's going there, but you just know it means something. And I remember I was in Newark Airport and I was in a check-in line uh, for security and I heard him say something, which is Carl Jung had this idea mm. that your interests would guide you towards your own personal growth in this sort of four-dimensional self-way. And something about it stuck. It just instantaneously stuck in my psyche and actually has been the foundation for my entire worldview. But then the whole of the rest of the episode kind of talks around that and a lot of other interesting, much crazier ideas. But I, I was like, huh, okay. And there's a lot of other ideas from him and his work that have resonated in similar ways. Wow. Yeah, so true. Because I'm a writer. So hero journey, I always thought, mm, yeah, that's uh, the way I write a story. I need to follow the hero arc. And now it leads me to left and the right hemisphere transition because you mentioned uh, in the podcast with Jim, the hero journey maybe is from the left brand to the right brand. Yeah, interesting. Just follow it because <laughs> it's always stuck in my mind. So every time I say this, I'll follow that. Yeah. I mean, I, I could spend like hours on the hero's journey, but I've been thinking about it in the last few weeks, right? Like, so our, our right hemisphere is for pattern recognition, right? Mm -hmm. If you're walking through a jungle, you're unconsciously taking in all this information that's not being served to your conscious awareness, right? And if you see the outline of a tiger, your interest is going to suddenly be gripped by it, right? You're going to mm -hmm. turn all your attention to it. And then if it's not a tiger, it's just some leaves, you'll move on, right? And I think about this in the context of the internet which is when someone shitposts or puts a meme out or something that doesn't have much value, you'll suddenly turn your attention to it, but it won't hold your attention because it doesn't have any, any enduring value. And then I look at the hero's journey and I'm, I'm sort of doing a, 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 a very subjective analysis at the moment. The hero's journey is basically accelerating in its pace in terms of, I think, by my count, roughly 12 or 13 of the 15 highest grossing movies ever are all hero's journey. And that's because the hero's journey is a precise instruction for how individuals and cultures evolve, either spiritually or culturally, right? And so the reason why our interest is gripped by it every time we see it is because it contains something important. This is something Peterson himself has talked about a lot, which is like, if you think fairy tales are just stories, watch your toddler when they're watching Pixar or Disney. Have you ever tried to hold a toddler's interest for 90 minutes? It's literally impossible. And yet when you put these fairy tales in front of kids, they contain these substructures that for whatever reasons are evolutionarily very attractive to us. And so when people are like, Hollywood's out of ideas, it's only making the hero's journey over and over again. I'm like, yes, but why? 
why does it grip our attention all the time, right? Like yeah. if you like when you have Frozen, which isn't a hero's journey, right? And they need to make a banker sequel, right? They need to make a guaranteed success sequel. Frozen 2 is literally the hero's journey from beginning to end in every single stage, right? Mm -hmm. When you have the Star Wars reboot, right? They need to make this movie a success because it's a squillion dollars. The the first episode of the, the third reboot is literally the hero's journey, line by line, and so on and so forth. And I'm like, these guys, when they get desperate, they just make the same movie over and over again. But why we like that movie, I think, is really important. Yeah, I see. You know, True Detective and uh, Interstellar. Have you found the hero journey there as well? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, Interstellar... Interstellar is a one-to-one -one hero's journey, right? Like, so the analogy that I've always used is um, is the way that ants operate. So ants, um, when they find a food source, they lay, lay a pheromone trail to that source. And then as their environment deteriorates, they peel off that pheromone trail to explore for new food. But they have this intrinsic sense in them where they deviate off the path um, linearly with how uncertain their environment is getting. So there's something in them that detects that they need to explore. No one knows what that is, but I think in humans, it's this instinct of love, this kind of exploratory instinct. And literally, this is all made completely explicit in Interstellar, right? Like, and it's made completely explicit. And there's even like wonderful little flourishes, like uh, Dr. Man, his name is Man. Yeah. His fear of death is what nearly derails the mission. Right. Because he basically is like, I was so afraid of dying that I called everyone over to my planet that was useless. And, and that sort of is the same concept as sort of the ego and the things that prevent us from surrendering. And then the relevance to true detective. There's um, I mean, this is deeply, deeply scary and a concept I haven't really understood yet. But one of the sticky ideas I can't get out of my head is what's the deal with horns? Right. Why does the devil have horns? Why does the minotaur at the center of the labyrinth have horns? Why does Moloch, the, the, the thing that is destroying our society through like pure competition, is also a horned god in uh, the, Canaanite, uh, the Canaanite tradition? So like you have this really weird consistency where everything's horned. And in True Detective, at the end of the series, Ross Cole goes to the center of a labyrinth and slays the horned god, the yellow king, and goes through this death and rebirth cycle where he literally dies. And as you said, unbelievably, like I picked up on as well, is sort of bathed in love through this sense of self-sacrifice. But I think about this, and this is just an operating theory, that this horned god is sort of the god of masculinity and the god of pure competition and you know the 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 animal that eats its young and moloch and that we need to transcend and integrate it without necessarily killing it in order that we can go back to sort of our feminine our traditional feminine and i don't mean like feminine in terms of a in terms of like contemporary genders i mean in terms of like jung's anima once we reunite with that force it will bring us into sort of this more taoist alignment and so it's this crazily consistent motif that you have this minotaur at the center of the labyrinth that you even see in Westworld that's um, literally a, you know, a, it explicitly references the bicameral mind and Julian Jaynes throughout. The labyrinth is a constant motif in the series. And at the center of the labyrinth, they say is this, this shadowy minotaur figure that's never fully explained in the concept. But it's like, if you're looking for patterns, it's this one thing that you kind of see across the board. I'm not so sure about my masculinity interpretation, but it is something that fits with the whole idea of Moloch. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So if I recall the mythology in Chinese context, some monsters, they all have horns. And uh, the first goodness from a Chinese mythology called Nuwa, she's a very beautiful woman with a snake body. So it's also like the snake symbol in Western context. So it's the East and West all connected together. Well, it makes me, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll know more than this than I, but I understand in Chinese culture, the dragon is a source of creativity, which actually is not inconsistent, right? Is that, you know, the, in the Campbell sense, the dragon 
guards the gold, right? And if you can integrate or slay the dragon, and I think obsessing on slaying it is probably unhealthy because it's it's not about killing the ego, it's the ego in service, right? But, you know, the, if the Chinese saw the dragon as a source of creativity and the West sees it as this this force that's that's preventing you from becoming creative, that seems very intriguing to me. And the serpent is something that's kind of of limitless interest that, that basically uh, in, in at least Kabbalah, they say, they say there is no route to, uh, to holiness without the confrontation with the cosmic serpent. And it usually involves in something that you have to be courageous enough to withstand, which again is sort of consistent with this idea that Jordan Peterson talks about, which is um, it's like a video game where you, you have to fight dragons to level up. But you don't fight all the dragons. You just fight the dragon that's in your way, right? And the dragon is in your way because it's something that's preventing you from sort of manifesting your true potential. And that is like a really interesting concept. But it also seems to be both in the dragon and in the cosmic serpent. It seems to be kind of associated with snakes in a way that, I, you know, you can probably go as deep as you want on an idea like that. Yeah, because in China, we all regard dragon as a king or related to the emperor because all their clothes or they, they worship dragon. Dragon is the, like a supreme of the spiritual animals. And I, it reminds me about a story, this uh, very well-known story about a guy who loved dragon so much. So he got all his furniture, all his clothes everywhere with a dragon symbol on it. But uh, one day the real dragon visited him. So he's scared to death. Cause so he only like worship this the symbol, but when he see the real one, he, he just refused to, to yeah. Cause before I, I just understand this story as um, dragon is not real or something like that. But now I can see it's a dragon means like optical. A lot of uh, stories I read when I was a child, I just literally, uh, literally understand them. But now I can dig deep, like the, all the mythologies, I kind of reread them to find the new meanings. Yeah, it's, and it's amazing how like, because I have now have a, a son, like he's three years old. So I'm sitting and watching all of the Pixar movies and all of the Disney movies. And it's really interesting to me that like one, like it's almost been like this amazing education because I'm sitting here being like, yep, 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 yep. And you can just spot the motifs as they come. I'm like, oh, that's a call to adventure. Oh, that's the refusal of the call. Oh, that's the refer, that's the mentor. Like, and literally it's just like, it's craziness. And what's interesting is that um, they all have the same story pretty much. The ones that don't have the same story, he doesn't have any interest in. Like he'll watch them three or four times, but he'll watch Moana 50 times, right? Like, like he'll watch Zootopia like 50 times. And the ones that have the stronger mythic substructure, he will just watch and watch and watch and watch. Yeah. Have you took him to see the Pinocchio? Pinocchio. 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 Yeah. Um, I haven't. Jordan Peterson's analysis of Pinocchio, I actually yeah. wrote mm. a piece on Medium about it. And it's got like tens of thousands of more views than uh, than anything I've done like since my current job, before my current job. And it's super crazy interesting that basically like, first off, it's the fourth most translated book ever. And you're like, huh, well, that definitely means something, right? And then like you look at what it actually says and you're like, Pinocchio, pine eye, pineal, right? In you know, the pineal gland in the center of our forehead, which is associated spiritual growth right that's pretty weird and then you have this marionette this puppet that wants to be a real boy and so he prays and prays and prays to be a real boy and then he has jiminy cricket his conscience which is this very small voice which is again consistent with the right hemisphere being a much better guide in life but not really having access to language and usually only saying when you shouldn't do something which is how we understand conscience. It's how Socrates referred to how his daemon would interact with him. It would say, only don't do this. But Pinocchio keeps lying, which again is something that only the left hemisphere can do. And his nose grows every time he lies and he gets further and further away from, uh, from manifesting his potential. And then he ends up at the, the, in the island where he's just drinking and partying and he almost gets turned into an ass, but he gets saved. And then you have this classic motif where basically he ends up in the belly of a whale 
which you know you can interpret a lot of different ways, but I interpret as sort of the, the belly of the beast, you know, the bottom of the abyss, where he saves his father and he dies. And then the blue fairy comes along at the end and says, you've saved your father. I'm going to turn you into a real boy and grant your wishes. So he goes through this very archetypal death and rebirth. He redeems the father, which is this concept I don't fully understand yet, but I've sort of been, been reading a lot about and be getting a bit smarter on. But like, well, there's one thing that I think I got really wrong about this that actually is really, really important. And I think that is a major, major flaw in at least the initial way that Jordan Peterson pitched the world. Um, and again, who am I to, to, to judge? But I just think it was something that massively paralyzed me, which is Peterson talks about find a goal that is big enough that it will make the suffering of life worthwhile. And I think when you tell people who are really lost, that will screw them up really badly. At least it did me. Because it's like, how do I how do I find this goal that is big enough to redeem my life? Whereas like that just then makes the ego hold the steering wheel even tighter, be like, I have to think my way out of this problem instead of doing what that you should be doing, which is basically surrendering to a wider intelligence. And this is something that like when you actually look at what Pinocchio mm -hmm. says, all Pinocchio wants is to be a real boy. Pinocchio doesn't say, I want to become Mother Teresa. And I think something that really hurts people in today's world is that they look for meaning in obvious places. They're like, I'm going to go and work for a charity. I'm going to go and volunteer in a soup kitchen. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I mean, obviously they're not. But I think what the problem is, is that, again, you need to be finding where your niche meets what the world needs. And for me, I think the, the gift that I rejected was my ability to synthesis, for synthesis and to reach an audience that's probably quite skeptical of a lot of these ideas through using my, my sort of my business angle, right? Once I leaned into that gift and finally accepted it, my life worked out really well. But while I was trying in a very obvious egoic way to bring meaning to others and to sacrifice myself, nothing worked. And I think that there's a danger from the way that at least I interpreted Peterson's work, that you have to have this really big, hairy goal. And I think that's actually the opposite of the way that you should be thinking about things. Mm. Do you think people need to do like trial and error journey to just try different things until they know are they on the tr right track or not? Because I don't think people can immediately know, oh yeah, this is uh, my niche connected with what's the world need. Mm, it's such a great question, and I, I think about it a lot, and I have no good answers. I think the way that I'll I, the way that I'll talk to my son about this is basically that you have to build up a base of pattern recognition in order to to um, to have any kind of mastery. And, and this is how Joseph Campbell talks about how to do it, which is you basically go to school, you learn the rules so that you can break the rules and then follow your bliss. Again, it's sort of this, this transition phase where you have, to, you have to have a base of skills. The nuance that I think is critical is that you have to be laying down this foundation mm -hmm. in something you're intrinsically interested in. So I'm not saying it's easy. It should ideally be very challenging, particularly at the start, but it should be something that you're not forcing yourself to do because if you're forcing yourself to do it, the person who isn't forcing themselves to do it will crush you. They will outperform you every 100% of the time, and you will risk running yourself in the wrong direction. Now, that's kind of generic platitudinous advice. I don't think it helps people very much. And I think you're right that you need to have this explore-exploit process early on in your life where like, you shouldn't narrow down your educational options too mm. early. You shouldn't close things off too early. I speak to a lot of people sort of, you know, in their 50s and they're like, you know, these bloody millennials, they have 10 jobs by, before they're the age of 30. And I'm much more sympathetic to that view now if the alternative is staying in a job you hate for 50 years, right? Like, but there's also this failure to commit that's on the other side of that where the moment something gets mm. hard, you ditch. And I think that it's sort of this, again, this sort of this Taoist balance between them where it's like, you need to find something that's really challenging, but it needs to be something that holds your interests. Finding that, I'm gonna guess it's the hardest thing in the world. Um, but once you've found it, you never need to do anything else. Mm. 
Yeah. So, what's your method of educating your children? Will you let him follow the traditional path or doing something new? I don't know yet.、Um, there's one piece of of like pattern recognition advice I'm starting to see everywhere, which seems to be of like critical importance.、Uh, I think particularly to raising children, and it's this idea of emotional granularity that basically.、Um, If our unconscious learns two hundred thousand times faster and has access to eleven million times more information than our conscious self, and those numbers are probably bullshit, but basically, like if you think about our conscious self as this tiny island in a huge sea, right, it is going to be serving information to you throughout your life that is of critical importance, particularly where you should、mm. be directing your interest, right. But if you don't have the granularity of expression to interpret that, those signals are useless, right? And I think about the idea of I think the human eye can see forty million different colors, but we have eleven words. And and something I said to Jim is that Sanskrit languages have ninety six words for love, and we basically have one, maybe three, four, right? And if love is the guide, if you have ninety six words for it.、Mm. You're going to be able to follow that signal with much more precision, right? You're going to be able to direct yourself and orient yourself in the world much better. And they found emotional granularity is associated with mental health. Yeah, people that could describe their mental states got out of、uh, therapy much faster. It's associated with physical health that you just didn't go to the doctors as much, and it's associated with much better decision making. So what me and my wife are trying to teach the boy right now, and then our girl when she gets old enough is. As many different words for physical sensations and emotions as they possibly can have, because then that closes this dissonance between the hemispheres and allows them to orient themselves in the world in a much more holistic way. Because also, like proving again that I'm just a massive hypocrite, I'm not very good at this. You know, I'm British, right? I'm the most emotionally dominant possible to be, <laughs> and my my own emotional vocabulary is again, it's probably like ten words. And that's so so stupid.、Mm-hmm. Wittgenstein, he said, "The limit of your language is your limit of your work." Ever since I start to learn new language, because I can speak English and、uh, Japanese, and now I'm learning Portuguese, so I feel like my like mental state is even healthier. I don't know、yeah. if if、uh, it's the、uh, language affect my thinking or whatever. Because as you mentioned, yeah. Once you have more、uh, words to describe your feelings or your thoughts, you probably have more like wider world view. So I think it's very fascinating. It's good to maybe teach your children like by be a bilingual or yeah, learn yeah. the different languages. Well, my wife's、yeah. Portuguese, so、uh, oh, good, I'm, I'm, cool. I've been trying to get her to teach the kids yes, Portuguese, yes. but so far unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so funny. I say we are close to the time. So, last question: What's the one thing that didn't make sense to you before, but when you look back, you think、mm, it's all connected? One thing I think that was important for me, and probably not very helpful to anyone else listening, but is that、um, once I look back on my life, I noticed a propensity for withdrawal. That often manifested itself in intellectual thinking. That that was the currency that I felt my parents loved me for if I if I achieved academically, but also like I, I went through a series of experiences where I was, I, I the world hit me, and instead of me you know braving it and going back into the world, I withdrew into my brain and into my head. And I see a lot of other people do this, and I just watched the pattern of this withdrawal get worse and worse until I hit my forties.、Um, and there's a maybe the best article I've ever read is by Brene Brown、uh, called "The Midlife Unraveling." Ah,、uh, yeah,、It's, I remember、uh, that. I've read it like fifty times.、Uh, that's an exaggeration. I've probably read it fifteen times.、Um, <laughs> And she has this expression, which is "midlife is when you realize your armor is preventing you from growing into your gifts." And like,、mm-hmm. if that's one line that just it just hammers me over and over again, it's that, which is that I realized my armor 
was this withdrawal from the world and this withdrawal into the abstract and my brain. And that was preventing me from the vulnerability that I needed in order to be sort of a creative person. And so just looking back and seeing that pattern, it doesn't mean I've got over it, but it was certainly a massive hindrance that I think caused a breakdown when I was young, when I was, you know, a few years ago, because it, when myself, my broader self was like, no, stop doing that. No more. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. So if people want to follow you, should I direct them to your Twitter and newsletter? Sure. Um, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is, actually. I think it's uh, it's Tom underscore Morgan KCP, uh, Tom Morgan on Twitter. And then the KCP is where I write. I write every two weeks and, uh, and sort of organize uh, events and calls for people that I find particularly interesting. That's great. I'll include them in the show notes. Thank you. Oh, thank you.